Series B show. I'm your host, Brandon Jones. This is part one of a two part series with Mr. Vince Cerf. And if you've ever seen the movie The Matrix, there's a character known as the architect who created the whole world that these characters live in. That character was modeled after Vince Cerf, who is the co founder and widely considered the father of the internet. He's been awarded the National Medal of Technology, the Turing Award, and the Presidential Medal of Freedom. He's truly considered to be one of the most important people in technology. In this episode, he talks about his process getting started in tech, working on the Apollo program. We learn a little bit more about his initial uh, interaction with computers at IBM and how he fell in love. We talk a little bit about his current role as the chief internet evangelist at Google and his perspective on important topics in tech, such as uh, the government regulating the internet, the government funding uh, technology in general, particularly space exploration, and how he thought about the internet when he was first kind of at the table coming up with what the internet might look like. So enjoy, this is a really good episode. Welcome, Ben. Thank you for the time, I really appreciate it. Well, it's a pleasure to be on the show. Absolutely. So. Um, I think what I want to do is, you know, there's a lot of information about you out on the internet. I kind of want to start from the beginning a little bit. Uh, you were born in New Haven, Connecticut. That's correct. Uh, my wife went to Yale, so I've been there only because of the Harvard Yale games. I went to Harvard for business school. And, uh, <laughs> How did you guys get along? How did you <laughs> so find each other? It, exactly. So it's, it's friendly banter, but we met in the New York professional scene. But New, New Haven is an interesting city. So I love to kind of, you know, hear a little bit about how long were you in New Haven? And not very long. Not very long. I, I was born during World War II in 1943, and my mother was living with her father in New Haven. But at the end of the war in 1946, my family all moved to Los Angeles, where my father found work. So really, I really grew young. up in L.A., in the San Fernando Valley, so I'm a valley boy. <laughs> okay, so you're not claiming New Haven, you're claiming the valley. So L.A., not, not the Bay. But yet, you were very, very much kind of, it looks like from your background, interested in technology from an early age. Could it have something to do with your father being in the aerospace industry? Uh, not exactly, because he was in the personnel training management business, and my mother was uh, an arts major, uh, a, a native of Canada, um, bilingual in French and English. Mm. Uh, our name is French. It means the stag or the deer. But... Both of them were very um, positive about education and academics, and they were very encouraging about that. And so uh, my father was a very uh, successful student, and so I always felt that, like I, I had a lot of encouragement and even, even a little bit of competitive uh, sense mm -hmm. of doing at least as well as my father had in school. Uh, but I got interested in science and mathematics pretty early on. So what external, if anything, um, factors contributed to that? Or was this more of an innate kind of curiosity that you had that gravitated towards STEM specifically? Uh, I think that uh, I was always interested in things. And uh, we had uh, Compton's Illustrated Encyclopedia, for example, which I read cover to cover uh, <laughs> you know, as a young person. And by the time I was 10, you know, I had been reading books like The Boy Scientist and uh, Microbe Hunters by Paul de Griff and all fascinated by scientific mm -hmm. things. 
And when I was in fifth grade, so I would have been 10 years old, um, I became bored with the arithmetic that we were doing in fifth grade. I, mean, wow. it was, I, I remember saying something like, there must be more to this than addition, multiplication, and division and stuff. And so my teacher uh, handed me a seventh grade algebra book and said, yes, there's more to mathematics. So I took that home and worked all the problems over the summer. We're so, let's just talk about fifth grade here. This is fifth grade. It's impressive. It's such a good time, uh, especially the word problems, which I loved because it was like little Agatha Christie novels, right, where you had to figure out what's X. That's one way of looking at it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I enjoyed math very much. And also science. I was a, a reader of Scientific American fairly early on, not really necessarily understanding it in the depth that I had probably should have, mm -hmm. but it was still fascinating to read all that stuff. Then I got a chemistry set from um, Gilbert Chemistry mm -hmm. Set. Mm -hmm. And back in those days, in this case, it would have been in the mid-1950s, they sent you some really cool chemicals. I mean, the, the stuff that you would never get today. Right, right. Potassium permanganate, which when you mix it with glycerin, which didn't come with a set, but you could get it from the drugstore down the street. It's hypergolic. You pour the two together, and it, it, it burns. So you're, having, you're having a time of your life with oh, these. Oh, man. I mean, we made thermite grenades, and we made little volcanoes, and we made a bunch of other things. So chemistry and math were really fascinating for me. And that stayed with me all through high school and served me well uh, working during the summers in the aerospace industry. In this mm -hmm. case, I did take advantage of the fact that my father worked at a company called North American Rockwell, or North American Aviation at the time. Uh, now it's Rockwell International. Mm -hmm. But I got jobs at places like Atomics International, Rocketdyne, Got it. Uh, is, you know, the air and space uh, system. What is it? Um, don't I don't remember the exact name of it. So this started. These these internships started in high school for you. In or high school. In high school. Right. Okay. Was this earlier than your peers um, on average, or were most folks kind of your age well, doing similar things? I think I, my first job at uh, Atomics International in 1960. So I was 17 at the time, and I was doing programming. Mm -hmm. And then the next year, Rocketdyne, uh, helping to test the F-1 engines for the Apollo program. The, my job was writing the software <clears throat> to analyze the data that came back from the test firings to figure out whether this thing was going to hold together until it ran out of fuel, after which we didn't care anymore. <laughs> so, uh, which is incredible, by the way, because we can just pause there and talk about um, you know having worked on the Apollo program and, and what that really yeah, means for this, mankind. This was, this, this was really exciting for me. Up in the Santa Susana Mountains, north of the San Fernando Valley, is where they had their test facilities. They would fire these things at night. This avalanche of water you know, would pour. They'd fire the engine. Your body is rattling. You know, you're 500 yards away or something. And I remember thinking uh, at age 18, 20 years from now, which from my point of view then seemed like you know, Forever. infinity, uh, well, still more than twice my then age, that we would be, you know, flying these things every two weeks. We'd be launching rockets, and they'd be going to the moon and other parts of the solar system. And of course, that didn't exactly happen. And the whole Apollo program kind of ended uh, in the seventies. Right. But uh, it really fired my imagination. On top of which, I was an avid science fiction reader, mm -hmm. and so here's real engineering, which kind of touched at the edge mm -hmm. of the science fiction that I was mm -hmm. reading. Mm -hmm. And so it was like we were rushing towards the future. So for me, all of that stuff was just mutually reinforcing. Got it. You were there at the point, you know, 15, 20 years before they actually had a successful landing through the Apollo program. 
at that time when you looked at the sheer magnitude of kind of what you were faced with, what was your perspective on like how realistic that goal was or how, how real did it feel at that point? Well, you know, I had done some early work at Rocketdyne using physical manual spreadsheets and calculators. And so by the time I got to write programs to do the same thing, I mean, this was like, oh, my God, this is so much easier. I can run the, the effectively run the spreadsheet in zero time by comparison with taking an entire week to do a computation only to discover that you made a mistake somewhere. So this, I didn't, of course, have the sense of the computing of, of today's age, right. which is you know just unbelievable. But at the time, it was so much faster than manual methods that it felt very powerful. Mm. Now, they do tell you that the, uh, the computers they had on board the Lunar Lander in 1969 was overwhelmed just by the radar uh, responses coming back. And that's right. why uh, uh, Neil Armstrong wound up taking manual control mm. over the lunar lander mm-hmm. with only 30 seconds of fuel left, mm. avoided the boulders and landed safely. But this time the human had to do it. Got and it. The computer just wasn't up to it. Got it. Got it. The second piece is, <clears throat> so you kind of were in this intersection of you, you were love, you love chemistry coming up. You love math. You kind of got your first internship, which puts you into aerospace. Yet, you kind of deviated. You went to DARPA, which is the uh, Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, which mm-hmm. is you know responsible for a ton of innovation, um, but not necessarily focused on like aerospace. That's one, one of the many things that are focused on. Why is it that kind of the aerospace industry or having worked on the Apollo program, you didn't decide, hey, this is the path I want to go down? Well, singular. okay, so there's several things here. Um, first of all, in 1958, I am now 15 years old. My father gets permission to take me in to see the semi-automated ground environment computer made out of tubes. Mm -hmm. This is before there were integrated circuits available at System Development Corporation in Santa Monica, California. What is this? This is a system that's taking radar traces from the northern distant early warning line in Canada, Mm -hmm. uh, sending radar out towards the Russians, basically, looking for Russian bombers coming over the pole. And, of course, it was important to distinguish the Russian bombers from, say, the Canadian geese that right. were on their way over. We wouldn't want to start World War III you know, because of Canadian geese. Although I will tell you occasionally I have wanted to start World War III because of Canadian geese, because of what they do in my army. But uh, so he introduced me to this tube-based computer. It was physically so big that you walked into the computer to use mm. it because the tubes are along the wall. So anyway, mm-hmm. I get fascinated by this, and I don't do much about it until 1960 which is the time when I'm working at Atomics International, my best friend, Steve Crocker, who is now the chairman of the board of the Internet Corporation for Assigned Names and Numbers, mm-hmm. he got permission from Michelle Melkinoff at UCLA to use the computers at UCLA while we're still in high school. Mm. And so, boy, is this ever fun. Right. You get to create your own little universe, and it does what you tell it. It doesn't always do what you want it to do. It mm-hmm. does what you tell it to do, and the difference is a bug, right? Mm-hmm. So, so I'm completely mesmerized by this idea of creating your own world inside of a computer. So I'm, I'm, you know, this, this, is, you know, this is it, computing right. is really right. something. Right. So the aerospace jobs all <clears throat> revolved around writing software. Mm. And so it was really, for me, about programming. By the time I get to college at Stanford University, um, I'm getting to use the Burroughs 5000 machine, the Burroughs 5500. I'm writing Balgol, which is a variation on Algol, mm-hmm. taking every computer science class I can, even though I'm a math major. Right. And, right. and so 
by the time I get through uh, Stanford in 1965, I've had all, all the programming courses I can find, and I end up going to work for IBM in Los Angeles. So really, the vector was always towards computing once got I got exposed to that in 1960. That resonated with you, obviously. Um, you spent a couple years at IBM. That's right. What made you decide to kind of transition to do something else at that well, time? Well, this was sort of an interesting thing. I, I was originally hired and trained to go install a 36091, which at the time was the largest machine at Los Alamos mm-hmm. for you know, the uh, labs that were designing nuclear weapons. Right. A few days before I was supposed to go there, they said, nope, we don't want you to go to Los Alamos. You need to stay here in Los Angeles and run this time-sharing system mm-hmm. called QuickTran, which is an interactive Fortran time-sharing system, believe it or not, you know, remotely accessed by people with terminals. Uh, and it was running on an IBM 7044, which was the previous generation of machine. Of course, mm-hmm. I'm very disappointed with all that, and I don't get to use the biggest, fastest, most wicked new machine on Earth. Um, but, on the other hand, the consequence of taking that job and being the systems engineer for that system meant I learned the inside of a time-sharing system, mm-hmm. which at the time was fairly new. Right. Time-sharing right. had been signed, sort of invented at MIT with um, um, John McCarthy and a couple of other guys on mm-hmm. a PDP-1 uh, from Digital Equipment Corporation. So, I'm actually diving pretty deep into the code. After two years, I realize I don't really understand design principles for operating systems, mm. for programming languages, for mm. compilers, and all the other stuff that goes along with serious um, uh, involvement in computing. Right. So I decide, okay, I really need to go back to school. Got it. Since I'm in LA anyway, I enroll at UCLA in the PhD program in computer science. Yep. And about two years into the program, it's 1969, and the next thing I know, the ARPANET project shows up, and I wind up being the principal programmer for the Network Measurement Center for the ARPANET mm-hmm. in Leonard Kleinrock's uh, office. And I get infected with networking. And Got I can it. tell you this is a permanent infection. You will never get rid of it. Uh, so so I my career vectored off into networking around 1968-69, and it has not left that vector since. ARPA is the Advanced Research Projects Agency. Correct. Affiliated with DARPA, which is the same with Defense in Front. Well, except that it started out in 1958. This organization was created after the Russians launched the Sputnik on ah. October 4, 1957. President Eisenhower said, this is not going to happen again. We are not going to suffer a technological surprise. Get out in front, and first thing you do is get us into space. And so that was their first job, and they spun out NASA from the Advanced Research Projects Agency. The name um, oscillated between right. Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency and right. Advanced Research Projects Agency. When I was working at UCLA, it was ARPA. Right. When I finally joined ARPA, it became DARPA. Right. And it's oscillated a little here. And, and so why do you think, what's, what's the, the big deal with the, I the think oscillation? The, the issue was you know, how much to focus on the defense side of it from, you know, from the public point of view. Mm-hmm. Initially, uh, because it was supposed to uh, deal with the space uh, problem, uh, Eisenhower was very, very concerned not to allow the space initiatives to be military. He didn't want all of the American space program to right. be bound to right. the military, even though it started that way. Right. Because you know, after World War II, we brought a lot of the German uh, rocket makers 
into the army mm. uh, at White Sands, New Mexico. If you look at the progress of state-funded space exploration, it's definitely slowed down a lot. Some people kind of fall on either side of the the, the field in terms of that, is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? You know, a bad thing meaning this money can be deployed towards more tangible, you know, issues being faced in these uh, communities, et cetera. Where do you stand on, you know, well, kind of the state of... First of all, I'm, I'm a scientist by trade. I mean, I, to be honest, I'm, I'm more an engineer than anything else, but I'm, I'm a computer scientist by mm-hmm. training. Mm-hmm. And I believe in discovery science. I, mean, I sit on the National Science Board. We oversee the National Science Foundation. It's all about basic, curiosity-driven discovery science. And so I believe that space exploration is a part of that and very important for us. Uh, in the long run, I think the government had to start because there was no obvious commercial reason to do this. It's mm-hmm. all about, first of all, not being surprised in space, uh, trying to make sure that there is no militarization of space, uh, and using our capacity to explore our solar system and understand our origins. So for me, the government involvement was necessary because nobody else would have done it. Now, of course, it's 2016. We're actually seeing astonishing um, progress being made in the private sector. Right. And, and NASA is helping to support that. They mm-hmm. are buying services from this uh, private sector operations, whether it's Elon Musk, SpaceX, mm-hmm. or uh, Orbital Sciences, or uh, Blue Origin, or some of the others. So uh, I think the government has actually done a very good thing which is to create a market in which the private sector can grow. Got it. And, you know, triggering, we did the same thing with the Internet. Hmm. The Internet was started out as government-sponsored stuff for mm-hmm. the research in military communities, and it stayed that way from 1967 or 68 all the way until 1989. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we're talking about 20 years of persistent investment in research <coughs> networking for military and academic purposes. And then we see commercialization happen. Of course, now here's Google, uh, you know, many years later, uh, investing enormous amounts of time, energy, and money uh, in infrastructure that once was the province of the government. Obviously, privatization is going to lead to, in many cases, increased efficiency um, and other factors that allow kind of these companies to do more with less. Well, yeah, for, for example, the possibility of reusing the boosters Right. I mean, you know, both the uh, the Blue Origin guys and uh, SpaceX are have demonstrated taking boosters and balancing them down on their tails. My God, it's like you know, what is it, Space Cadet and Flash Gordon or something? <laughs> we, we always it was science fiction, and NASA never tried to do that. Right. And so here we are seeing, you know, hybrid vigor. It's seeing what happens when the private sector decides to take a whack at something. It didn't hurt that these are young folks who are too young to know you can't do that, and so they tried it. <laughs> right. How do you think about government's involvement at the mature stage of these technologies once kind of privatized? So, uh, of course, this is a pretty complex question. The government had to um, spend resources to design and build this system initially because there was no obvious commercial application for it. Uh, in fact, the original motivations uh, in the earliest stages of ARPANET were essentially resource sharing. The, the uh, ARPA had been supporting research at a dozen universities in artificial intelligence and computer science. And every year, each of those schools said, you have to buy us another world-class computer. 
so we can do world-class research. And ARPA said, we can't afford to do that for a dozen different universities. We're going to build a network and you can share your resources, your software and hardware. And everybody hated that, but they built it anyway and it worked. So this was the first demonstration of wide area packet switching to link computer resources together. Mm -hmm. Then uh, the next step comes, the Defense Department says, you know, computers are really powerful tools. Could we use them to manage our resources, uh, especially in a battlefield uh, environment? And if we could use them to manage resources more efficiently, maybe a smaller force could overcome a bigger one. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So then that immediately leads to the uh, recognition that I'm going to have to put computers and airplanes and mobile vehicles and ships at sea, as well as fixed installations, which led to this, uh, the development of a mobile packet radio network and a mobile packet satellite, or not mobile, but a packet satellite network for the ship-to-ship -ship and ship-to-shore communication. And at this point, um, my colleague, Robert Kahn, who by this time has gone to ARPA, uh, is asking the question, if we're going to build these different networks, mobile radio, packet satellite, the wireline, ARPANET, how do we hook them together so they look uniform? Mm -hmm. That's the internet problem. Mm -hmm. And we solved that problem in about six months during the spring of 73 to the fall of 73, developing the, basically the TCP protocols, which later became TCP IP. Yep. We briefed those protocols in England in September of 1973 to a group called the International Network Working Group, proceeded to do detailed design of that protocol, the TCP protocol, during 1974. That was published in December of 74. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we started implementation in January of 75. Right. And we went for about three years of cycling through multiple implementations, testing, finding mistakes. By 78, we're pretty well stabilized. We uh, fix on the TCP IP version 4 design uh, protocols and architecture. And then we start implementing for every operating system we can find. Right, right. And by January 1st, 1983, the internet gets turned on. Mm -hmm. Huge. Well, it was big from my point of view because, you know, we worked really hard for a decade right. on this. Getting it turned on was pretty exciting. And, and once it's turned on, other people are beginning to see that it works, and they're starting to build their own instances of it, which is perfect, because the Internet was designed to allow any network to, to join it, right. and to become yeah. part of the ensemble. And as long as everybody used the same protocols, everyone, everyone would interwork. And so anyone who had a motivation to do this, whether it was commercial or academic or government, could participate in growing this global resource. Right, right. And... You know, when you thought about the potential of it at that point in time when you're working on it, how big did you think it would get? Well, you should understand that by the time Bob and I are starting to work on this, it's 1973. Mm -hmm. We had both been involved in the ARPANET project. Bob was one of the key architects of the ARPANET packet switch. It's mm -hmm. called an interface message processor or an IMP. We grew up during in, in our uh, networking activity during the uh, period when uh, electronic mail was invented in 1971 by Ray Tomlinson. And so everybody grabbed on that. It got very exciting. We could see the social impacts of electronic mail because the first mailing list turned out to be, let's see, the first one uh, was called Sci-Fi Lovers. Mm -hmm. It was people, we were all geeks, right? We all read science fiction, so we're arguing over who is the best author or who right. the best stories. 
So that's a so. I mean, it was clearly a social environment. The same thing is true for the second distribution list, which was called Yum Yum, and it came from Stanford, and it was restaurant reviews in Palo Alto, <laughs> which eventually expanded over a broader territory. So we knew that this was a social environment, not just a research environment. Mm-hmm. Um, we were already experimenting at that time with packetized voice and packetized video mm-hmm. in the mid-1970s while we were doing the experiments with the mobile radio network and the satellite net. We demonstrated the first three network tests, satellite net, the mobile radio net, and the ARPANET in November 22nd, 1977. Mm-hmm. So we recognized the potential here. Uh, we'd also had the benefit of seeing Douglas Engelbart's work at SRI International on what was called the online system. Mm-hmm. Here is sort of a single computer World Wide Web. Uh, and what he had, what did he have? He invented the mouse so you could point to places in a document and click on hyperlinks. Mm-hmm. So he invented hyperlinks, documents are related to each other. It's a collaborative environment. Uh, it's portrait mode display, so black on white, it looked like paper. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're all using this system. So he's, the principles that we use today were very much visible in their nascent form. In terms of scale, uh, we, we guessed that there would be two networks per country, nationwide networks per country, because we just built the ARPANET and it wasn't, it's a, it wasn't a trivial exercise. So we thought, well, maybe there will be two for some competition. And then we guessed, we didn't know how many countries there were and there wasn't any Google to ask. So we, <laughs> we guessed at 128. So we said, okay, so 256 networks. And then we, then we went hog wild and said 16 million computers per network. Remember, the computers were big air-conditioned you know, right. things. So that was a silly, very big number. Right. Um, and that meant a 32-bit address space, basically. Eight bits for network and, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, 24 bits for computer. So that 32-bit address space was called IP version 4, Internet Protocol version 4. And that actually would give you 4.3 billion terminations. Mm-hmm. And in 1973, I think that may have been more than the population of the planet at that time. But you were thinking big, which so is we a good thinking, thing. Well, we certainly were thinking global because we knew that the military, if it was going to use this technology, had to operate anywhere in the right, world. Right. We didn't allow the address space to be country-based, mm-hmm. unlike the telephone system, mm-hmm. because you had to be able to deploy anywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you couldn't go and ask permission from some right, country to get address. Barriers, Can yeah. I? We're planning to invade in two weeks. Can we get some address space for our command and control system? Doesn't not, work. Not practical. Right? Doesn't work. So, so we were thinking big. We weren't thinking big enough because we ran out of the address space that we had developed in '73 in 2011. So that's a fair number of years yeah, later. Absolutely. Fortunately, in '96, the Internet Engineering Task Force had standardized on a 128-bit address space, anticipating that we were going to run out of addresses. Got it. Now we have this avalanche of the Internet of Things, and we're going to need that address Mm -hmm. space. Mm -hmm. So currently, Vice President and Chief Internet Evangelist for Google. Correct. What does that mean? What do you do? Uh, Well, it it sort of means anything that, you know, we we decide it should mean. Um, I didn't ask for the title either. When Larry and Sergey... uh, uh, invited me to join the company. 
they asked me what title I wanted, and I said, how about Archduke? <laughs> and uh, they went away, and they came back, and they said, you know, the previous Archduke was Ferdinand, and he was assassinated in 1914, and it started World War One. Maybe that's a bad title to have. Why don't you be our chief internet evangelist? I said, okay, I can do that. Right. So uh, part of my aspiration uh, with that title is to get more internet built all around the world. And fortunately, Google agrees with that idea mm -hmm. and has spent substantial resources most recently, for example, in India with a planned 400 railway uh, mm -hmm. system, mm -hmm. yeah. but in Ghana and uh, in uh, uh, other parts of Africa. We put in a, a fiber network as a wholesale service. We're going to do the same thing uh, in Tunisia. We're doing the same thing uh, in Ghana. So the company is uh, investing in expansion of the internet. I'm very active in standards because standards are what make it possible to have large scale where mm -hmm. you don't have to have negotiations and agreements. If you meet a standard together, then you have some assurance of interoperability. So I have internet growth and standards are important. Internet policy, which you touched on in your question, is also part of my watch. There is a lot of government uh, concern about the harms that can occur to users in the internet. Right and all the way up to and including national security questions. Right, right. And you might say, well, you know, why didn't you design it right in the first place? And then there's a lot of reasons why security could not be put into the system exactly uh, in its early origins. First of all, there are graduate students using it, and they're not very disciplined when it comes to security. Right. But more important, the technology which would be appropriate was still immature at that time. We're talking about the 1970s. Mm -hmm. At this stage, however, those technologies are available. They're mature. Public key crypto is available. We are using it. That's what HTTPS uses. That's what our two-factor authentication uses. So we are in the process, along with many others, of retrofitting mm -hmm. a lot more security into the system. Meanwhile, we also have social uh, effects on this thing, whether it's spamming or uh, malware being distributed or denial of service attacks happening. Um, all kinds of, of things that are socially unfriendly. Mm -hmm. Governments naturally, most of them anyway, want to protect their citizens because that's the, the deal that you make. I'm a citizen, I have constrained my right. um, uh, freedom in exchange for some uh, safe uh, or safer environment. And so governments are struggling domestically to deal with the downsides of this you know, global communication system while trying to enhance the upsides. Mm -hmm. But because the network is boundaryless, it doesn't know that it's crossing international boundaries, the a perpetrator of harm could be in one country and the, right. and the uh, target could be in another. So now right. we have an international law enforcement question. We have social convention issues. Mm -hmm. For example, people take pictures and they upload them into, you know, uh, Google Photos or Facebook or what have you, and they don't necessarily ask permission to do that. Right. And so there is this um, constant uh, exposure that innocent bystanders have uh, in the online environment. Right. Right. So figuring out how to cope with that on an international scale is still um, a topic of considerable right. debate. Yeah, for it's, sure. And it is daunting, this is true. But we are going to have to find a way to do that. It's not like this is the first international communication system. Right. There was the telegraph, there right. was the telephone, there was the postal service. Right, right. And they all had the potential for fraud and other kinds of things. 
It's just that people have computers to help them uh, do harm mm-hmm. uh, in the network uh, at, an, at an even greater uh, scale mm-hmm. than you might be able to do with the earlier technologies, which just makes it a tougher problem. And this concludes part one of a two-part episode with Bent Surf, the father of the internet. Check out part two, where Vint discusses what scares him most about the internet and solutions um, that he offers to address what scares him the most about the internet. Uh, he discusses the possibility of computer programs that write themselves, uh, income inequality in America, and the role of technology in that. Um, a new model for learning, the current kind of academic system within the U.S., and, and what could be a better model in the future to make sure you know everyone participates. He discusses, you know, his bucket list, who'd he do dinner with, dead or alive, and his love for wine. So definitely check out the next uh, part of this episode. Uh, it's, it's really a good one.